With a controversial transportation ballot measure on the horizon, there's more interest in the open Metro Council seat than ever. Chris Smith is one of those hopefuls. A longtime transportation activist in Portland, Smith has been a member of the Portland Planning and Sustainability Commission, the Metro Policy Advisory Committee, and many other transportation-focused groups. He also runs the blog Portland Transport. Chris, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. I appreciate you making the space. Not a problem. So let's let's jump in and 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 talk about uh, some of the the things that are going on right now, and then we'll talk about Metro in general and and your candidacy. Um, what are North Portland's greatest transportation needs right now? Uh, you know, I think when we think about North Portland, uh, I tend to think about the Lombard Corridor, um, which, of course, is uh, a major arterial. Uh, there's also a lot of freight activity in North Portland uh, and some uh, definite conditions where there are uh, unsafe conditions for anybody who's not in you know, a heavy vehicle. So uh, missing sidewalks, uh, poor bicycle infrastructure, um, It'd be nice at some point in the future to get light rail out to St. John's. Uh, you know, we, we get up to Kenton, but uh, mm-hmm. we got to serve the rest of the peninsula eventually. Um, so, you know, District 5 is actually probably better off than much of the region in that uh, District 5 has relatively complete street grids. Uh, most of the areas have sidewalks, so there are definitely some exceptions. Um, so um, there's a new metro transportation uh, measure uh, coming up. Can you can you talk briefly about what that measure is and 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 let us know your thoughts about uh, does it go too far? Does it not go far enough? Uh, what's what's up with that with the new uh, metro transportation measure? Sure. Um, so just to be upfront, uh, I am supporting the measure. I'm urging folks voting for me to also vote for the measure. It's not perfect. If I were designing uh, a transportation measure, it would have um, less investment in drive-alone auto trips and more investment in more sustainable forms of transportation. But on the whole, I think it moves us forward. And when I think about evaluating a measure like this, uh, I look at really four factors. What does it do for mobility and access so you know does it help people get to their jobs or to school or to their daily life needs um does it improve equity does mm. it improve safety uh and then of course climate is a huge lens for me i'm running as a grassroots climate champion um and it really it was that last factor climate that made me think the most about this measure the modeling suggests that uh the set of investments in this measure are essentially carbon neutral uh, obviously, I would prefer that we were uh, you know, helping reduce carbon to a greater degree uh, with this measure. But I, when I look out and see what else is likely to happen in the region in terms of uh, you know, statewide policy like cap and trade or something else that you know, uh, will probably create some economic incentives to drive less, uh, when I look at what I think is likely in our future, some form of regional congestion pricing, uh, and you couple these investments with those kind of policies, uh, and, and the great thing about this package is it does create other choices for people to make other than driving alone. So it, mm-hmm. you know, it builds a lot of bike lanes, uh, builds a lot of sidewalks, uh, makes it uh, easier for transit to get around traffic congestion. So you know things like uh, Q bypass jump lanes. So when you know when the traffic stops at the red light, the uh, the bus can go around. 
okay. cars and get a head start uh, when the light turns green. Um, so I think, it, you know, when you look at the total set of things that are likely to happen, this is a good thing for climate. Um, but I think it scores really big on a couple other factors. So the huge improvement in equity, most of the investments are in parts of the region that have uh, traditionally been underserved with transportation infrastructure and have high concentrations of BIPOC folks and lower income folks, uh, and big improvements in safety, uh, sidewalks, uh, crossing treatments so people can you know, get across the street safely. And we know, particularly in East Portland, where there are a lot of investments in this measure, uh, or East County in general, uh, a lot of folks get killed on a much too regular basis because it's just not safe to cross the street. So what, what are the arguments against this measure, and, and how do you counter them? Yeah, it's fascinating because, uh, of course, business is running the campaign against the measure. It's big businesses uh, because the measure only taxes businesses that have more than 25 employees. So it's Nike and other very large employers in the region uh, who are opposing this. Um, Yeah, I think there's a fair question that can be asked of should we be doing this in the middle of a pandemic and uh, probably more importantly, a recession uh, driven by the pandemic um, and uh, I think you could ask the question of, is the revenue-raising mechanism appropriate? So let me take both of those. Okay. Um, you know, we will not start collecting taxes uh, to fund this until 2022. So I certainly hope the worst of the recession will be over by then. But mm-hmm. also, traditionally, uh, transportation measures are uh, stimulus. Uh, so they create jobs, help fuel the economy. Uh, this measure is projected, depending on how you count, to create you know, anywhere from 17 to 21 to 37,000 jobs. Different people have different estimating mechanisms. There's a piece of the limit week this morning that talks about that, but uh, it will be creating jobs, and those are typically good family wage jobs. Um, so I think even if you uh, are worried about the recession, I think you can say this is a, you know, a traditional Keynesian investment to help stimulate the economy. Um, the revenue mechanism, you know, it's a payroll tax, um, and let's be honest and call it that. It's a tax on payrolls. Okay. Um, there's some efforts to portray it as a quote-unquote business tax, but you know, the, the mechanism is a payroll tax. Um, you know, that wouldn't be my first choice. You know, in a perfect world, this would be funded by a carbon tax. Uh, mm-hmm. It could help uh, reduce greenhouse gases. Uh, but the fact is that um, Metro did not have a lot of good choices left when it came time to to put this on the ballot, uh, Metro used a lot of its income taxing authority on the homeless services measure this spring, which I think absolutely appropriate. I campaigned for that. Mm-hmm. Um, believe it was a good investment. Uh, the only other real uh, available choice would have been an, an auto registration fee. Uh, and while that you know, uh, has some policy nexus, because of course it's actually a user fee on the people who are driving, yeah. the fact is that it's, it's horribly regressive. You pay the same registration fee for a clunker as you do for a $75,000 luxury vehicle. Yeah. Um, Metro did not have the legislative authority to scale this by the size of the vehicle or the price of the vehicle or any other factor. They only had the opportunity to do a, uh, a flat fee uh, on motor vehicles. So I think it's appropriate that they didn't go that way. Uh, and that left the payroll tax. Um, so it, it is what we have available. Um, and, you know, I've been, uh, as you noted, I've been a transportation activist for several decades now. And we've been having conversations about the fact that we're underinvested in transportation infrastructure in this region, whether you like driving or like bikes or like walking um, or transit. Uh, we're underinvested, and we have been for several decades. Uh, so I've been in conversations for 15 years plus 
uh, about you know how we can pull together uh, a regional package. And I give a lot of credit to the leadership that put this in place. Uh, they went out to the community. They had you know, a huge task force that worked on this and shaped it. And then there's been advocacy by a variety of uh, organizations and coalitions, uh, particularly BIPOC organizations, to help improve this. So the the package of investments that's on the ballot is much better than you know what we started with as a starting point. Uh, and I want to emphasize that this is not just building things. This is all also programmatic. So there are programs, for example, like Youth Pass, uh, which is the you know the ability of our high school aged youth to uh, to ride the bus or the train for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that started in Portland. Uh, actually, started in the Portland Public School District uh, a little over ten years ago. Uh, I've been a big supporter of that. I put language in the Portland plan, which is the city's strategic plan, to expand that beyond PPS. And, you know, we have managed to get it to the point where all the school districts uh, that that are uh, in Portland, you know, the five or six districts that touch Portland in some way, uh, have youth pass. And now this will expand it to the entire region. uh, And we hope it will eventually also be able to uh, cover um, middle school age children uh, as well so that we can... You know, nice. Get our youth uh, in the habit of riding transit, make it easier for them to get to and from school as well as after school activities and other things. So uh, one of the benefits of this is that instead of being just a school year program, it'll be year round. Uh, so there's a lot of good stuff in this measure. Well, and, and I, I appreciate uh, clearly hearing your, your transportation expertise coming through. Um, let's talk about your your candidacy for this um, Metro Council seat. What what sets you apart as as a candidate? So I'm running primarily as a grassroots climate champion, uh, and you know, the the one and two issues in my campaign are climate and then housing because obviously we have a housing crisis in this region, and I think then the, the grassroots part. Uh, I've been a campaign finance reformer for more than two decades since I helped write a city club report uh, back in the year 2000 on uh, the first ballot measure that would propose a public campaign finance system. So I know that the corrosive impact that big money has uh, on not just our elections, but the way we govern ourselves in this state. Um, So while there are no statutory campaign finance limits for Metro, um, I am voluntarily limiting contributions in my campaign to $500. And in fact, my campaign is, uh, is fueled by more than 500 individual donors. Um, you know, I paid attention to the fact that the voters in my district, which is mostly in Portland, the district, district five goes from, uh, Cedar Mill, uh, in Washington County, uh, all the way out to, uh, Northeast 122nd, uh, Portland, and it's everything north of the freeway, so north of Highway 26 on the west side and north of 84 on the east side. That's a uh, fascinating so district. district. A big district, about 250,000 people. Um, but the voters are mostly in Portland. And Portland, mm-hmm. voters in Portland have twice voted for uh, finance limits, once uh, for $500 limits for city elections, uh, and again, for $500 limits for county elections. They haven't had a chance to have that vote yet for Metro. Maybe that's something we can facilitate uh, the next four years if I'm elected. Uh, but I heard loud and clear that they don't want to see big money in their elections, and I'm abiding by that. Nice. So uh, that's what a fascinating district uh, to, to represent. Um, and, you know, with your uh, a, a 
a portion of your experience dealing with with policy is your experience on the Planning and Sustainability Commission. Um, what lessons did you learn there, um, and and how would you uh, bring those those lessons to uh, your uh, Metro Council uh, seat? Uh, you know, I think one of the the biggest lessons I've learned is about equity and racism. You know, during the 11 years that I've served on the Planning and Sustainability Commission, uh, we basically rewrote all of Portland's major policies, uh, centering them on equity, starting with the Portland plan, which, as I said, was the strategic plan for the city created back when Sam Adams was mayor. uh, And then that was implemented in the comprehensive plan and a slew of other plans. uh, And the the consistent effort through all that was to center equity uh, as you know, key to all our policies. And I think the wake-up call for me has been to realize that that wasn't enough. That in fact, we need to be anti-racist uh, in our policies. It's not just enough to be equitable. We have to be actively anti-racist. We're beginning to learn how to do that. We have some uh, some great new commissioners who have uh, some experience uh, representing BIPOC groups and other groups uh, for whom anti-racism is a, is a key uh, foundation principle. Uh, I'm learning from them, uh, continuing to learn how to be anti-racist. We'd love to take that experience to Metro. But I think we've also learned to apply uh, those equity principles along the way. So, you know, huge project that I was uh, happy to be involved in and be a thought leader was the residential info project. Mm. And, you know, that's the policy that says that, uh, you know, anywhere you could build a single-family house in Portland, uh, you can now do a duplex or a triplex or even a quadplex. And uh, in some special situations where you've got affordability, you can go up to six units. And a huge part of that was to uh, erase the history of exclusionary zoning in Portland. So a lot of our single-family neighborhoods were basically created uh, in the 40s and 50s in, in the zoning code then with the principle of excluding people of color. Um, you know, the, the code that you, you don't see yeah. that language in the code, but that is absolutely the effect and was absolutely the intent. And, you know, uh, I don't believe the people who live there now uh, believe they're being racist and living in their homes, but they are benefiting from the the legacy of that policy. And uh, with residential infill, you know, I was one of the folks who led the charge to go from duplexes to quadplexes uh, and also to expand it to larger parts of the city. Um, it not only helps solve our housing problems, although it's certainly not, you know, it's not a silver bullet. It's one of many tools uh, that we need to have adequate housing and uh, you know, a reasonable level of affordability in Portland, but it, it also uh, erases that history. Well, erases is probably a strong term. Um, yeah, makes clear that yeah. acknowledges <laughs> right acknowledges and, uh, and and turns around the policy of that exclusionary zoning. Well, thank you for your your work on that. Um, uh, we've we've only got a couple more minutes, so I, I want to ask your your thoughts on uh, a few of the kind of headline grabbing transportation uh, projects that are in process or in discussion. Um, what's, what's the, the I five expansion and, um, maybe you can just really briefly, uh, sum that up and, and, and let us know what, what's the deal with that? Sure. So that project is proposed by ODOT to add, uh, about a mile of additional lanes in each direction, uh, near the, the Rose quarter area, uh, with, with, you know, being sold as an attempt to ease a bottleneck. Um, I was the first public official uh, to vote against that project and a vote on the Planning Commission in 2012. Uh, and in 2017, I helped form 
the organization No More Freeways to oppose it. Uh, and the reason for that is that we know that urban freeway expansion simply doesn't work to solve congestion. Uh, the phenomenon known as induced demand, uh, which is the idea that if you build new transportation infrastructure, uh, new development, new users will follow that, and you wind up with just as much congestion, if not more, after a few years. So you know, it will not solve the congestion problem. And it's going to expand the freeway into both the school, the Harriet Tubman Middle School, mm-hmm. uh, which, as we know, has a high concentration of BIPOC youth. And in the other direction, it will expand it into a park, to the East Bank Esplanade. And in fact, it will have to uh, drop support columns into the Willamette River, uh, which means we'll have an impact on fish and other things. It's, it's just a silly idea, and it's uh, unfortunately rooted in the fact that, that ODOT has not moved behind uh, the build, build, build paradigms of the 50s. The only thing that's going to help urban freeway congestion is congestion pricing. We have to manage the demand. We can't simply plan to build to accommodate new demand. Uh, that, that new demand never stops, and we destroy our city in the process. So another uh, big project that uh, comes and goes is the Interstate Bridge project uh, on uh, I-5. Uh, what's what's the bottleneck there, and 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 how would you, as a metro council member, uh, uh, advise that project in it, in moving forward? Sure, and I really see that as uh, of one piece with the, the Rosequater project. It's, we have to think about the whole corridor, and by opposing Rosequater, I think we're trying to instill the values in the planning process that we need. So there are a lot of arguments replace the I-5 bridges. Uh, you know, they're not seismically resilient. They don't have shoulders. So that's a safety issue. Uh, they're horrible uh, if you're on a bike or a pedestrian to try and cross the river that way. Um, and we don't have uh, a good transit connection across the river. So I'd be happy to talk about uh, a replacement uh, that addresses those issues. You know, we should have good bike pad connectivity. We should absolutely have high capacity transit crossing the river. Um, we should probably have you know, an arterial lane to get to uh, Hayden Island without having you know, to get on the freeway to go to the grocery store if you live on Hayden Island. Um, but we can't be using the values of we have to accommodate more and more cars. So you know, my bottom sure. line would be that when the project is done, uh, we should have fewer drive-alone auto trips than we have now. So that means that demand management uh, has to be a core value of the project uh, I don't know that uh, that ODOT is there uh, on that value, but uh, I was certainly part of you know, getting elected to District 5, which the bridge is in, uh, is uh, to have a seat at the table for that discussion because uh, it needs to reflect our climate values. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate your, your commitment to, to serve our community by running for the open uh, Metro Council seat. Uh, where can people go to learn more about your policies and candidacy? Uh, my website is ChristopherMetro.com, and we have uh, uh, that same Christopher Metro handle on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So come check us out. All right. Thank you, Chris Smith. Thanks for uh, talking transportation uh, with us this morning on uh, X-Ray. And, uh, again, you can uh, uh, look out for more information about uh, Chris and and, uh, his candidacy on the web. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks very much. You got it.